Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Urban History Podcast. I'm Camille. And I'm Maggie. And we are your hosts today of Urban History Podcast at CU Denver. And today, once again, we will explore how the patterns in our contemporary urban environment are linked to urban environments of the past. And today we're a little bit flipping the script because we have a guest here who is an expert in not only Denver history, but just Denver. And you'll hear his resumes and experience coming up to show just how knowledgeable he is. And so we're really excited to have him. Yes. So welcome to the podcast, Ken Shreppel, who is the Director of Urban Design and an Assistant Professor CCT in the College of Architecture and Planning, where he teaches in both the Master of Urban and Regional Planning and the Master of Urban Design programs. Ken's areas of interest and expertise include land use and transportation planning, data collection and planning methodologies, data visualization, graphic design, urban design, urban morphology, and Denver's urban planning and development history is close to his heart. Um, He's an active community member in the planning and design scene in Denver and has served on numerous organization boards, including Denver Streets Partnership, Yes in My Backyard Denver, the American Planning Association, the Urban Land Institute. It's a long, successful resume. And today you may recognize him for his work in the Denver Infill blog and Denver Urbanism blog. So please welcome Ken Schreppel. Hello. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. It's awesome to have you, Ken. I mean, you're such a wealth of knowledge on Denver history. I don't know if I asked you previously, how long have you lived in Denver? Uh, 37 years at this point. Okay, so longer than I have been alive. <laughs> Almost longer than Camille and oh, I have man, been alive combined. Oh, you're making combined. me feel old now. <laughs> oh, we're so happy to have you. And kind of like Camille said, flipping the script, rather than us reviewing some historical context and tying it back into your work. We were hoping you could introduce us and the rest of the podcast to the history of urban infill in Denver, you know, since uh, like the 1990s and, and onward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm happy to. It's an exciting topic. And I mean, cities are always in, in the process of change and Denver's no exception. So when we look at Denver's evolution as a city since the 18, you know, 1858, when it was founded, um, it's gone through various eras and phases of growth, just like anything. And so uh, the infill era, we might call it, um, got its start in the 1990s. You know, Denver, like a lot of cities around the country, fell on hard times in the 70s, 70s and 80s for the most part. There was a kind of peak suburbanization. So population losses. Denver had uh, two censuses in which it lost population. Uh but due to a number of factors, people started to return to the city uh, in the 1990s. And that's when we really started to see kind of a slow um, uptick in infill development. And so um, I started noting that. In fact, that was in the, a couple of years prior to me um, getting my master's in planning. In fact, it was, I think, the return to the city movement and sort of this emerging infill development scene in Denver, that was one of the things that motivated me to to go into planning because I I found Mm -hmm. that very exciting and hopeful that cities were sort of coming back. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so then, uh, of course, the city also invested billions of dollars in infrastructure and facilities during the 1990s. Denver International Airport, Light Rail, Coors Field, 
new convention center, new stadiums and arenas, new libraries and museums. Denver voters just approved time and time again bond programs that funded just billions of dollars worth of civic infrastructure with it really kind of the intent to um, bring the city back and to help Denver kind of grow and position itself well for the future, which is exactly what it did. And so we started to see vacant lots starting to be um, acquired or, you know, developed. People started to renovate their older homes, and we just started to see kind of a real a rush of investment in the city. And by the time we got to the end of the 2000s, it was really starting to, uh, it kind of really had gone mainstream at that point, and it was really sort of the driving force in what was happening in the city. And so in 2004, I was having so much fun tracking all of these projects that were kind of popping up almost daily, particularly in and around the downtown area. And I thought, you know, there ought to be this place where you could go and kind of be able to see what's going on in terms of projects at specific locations and like the renderings and some statistics on the projects. One place to go to kind of get it all. And there really wasn't such a place. And so I decided to create it. And so I launched Denver Infill mm -hmm. in 2000. And I started working on it in 2004, launched it. It was kind of finished by 2005. And I set as my baseline for tracking projects January of 2000. So kind of going back to the start of that mm -hmm. decade and established kind of then this database of projects and mapping them and having blog posts on each and, you know, kind of tracking it um, and did that, you know, and it's here we are 17 years later and <laughs> yeah. um, still doing it. In 2011, I brought on a partner, Ryan Dravitz. And so he and I have been working together kind of as a mutual hobby, essentially. So the two of us run Denver Infill. Um, these days, he's doing almost all of the posting of actual articles. Mm -hmm. But I'm very much involved. Uh, he and I go out and do photographs together. We track projects together and we talk almost daily about kind of what what's happening next on Denver and Phil. So it's been a lot of well, fun. And, yeah. And I mean, it's such a valuable resource you've created for not only community members who are just like, you know, living their life and wondering what that what's thing that? is that's going <laughs> yeah. up down the street. But also, I mean, for us as students, I can't write a paper for our program without accidentally citing yeah. Denver Infill. <laughs> it just keeps coming up. So it's really just a, such a helpful tool for our community to be using. Yeah, I, I thank you. And, and you know, it's funny because when you mentioned about doing kind of research and you, you come across Denver Infill, when we are doing our own research on like projects, we keep running into Denver infill. It's like we're back. <laughs> Citing yourself That's over and over not helpful. <laughs> Although sometimes actually it is. Sometimes like, oh yeah, I forgot we said that eight years ago. But I want to make one thing clear also about Denver infill. It's kind of like, why do I care about infill development? I don't care about real estate development per se. I mean, I'm not like into it for the development side of it. To me, urban infill is a means to an end. The end is a more walkable city. Because in my experience of, of visiting cities and walking around and exploring urban places, it's all about the pedestrian. I mean, that is how cities got their start. I mean, cities from the dawn of civilization up until the early part of the 20th century were completely built and organized around the pedestrian because that's how everybody got around. And to me, the best urban places are the ones that are pedestrian oriented, where you feel as a pedestrian, like the environment was built for you. Mm -hmm. And of course, 
in the post-World War II era, we destroyed a lot of our city's fabric and character in accommodating the automobile. And so as Denver emerged into the 1990s and into the 2000s, particularly in the downtown area, there were just so many surface parking lots that just destroy the, the, the character and fabric of the city and as a pedestrian make it really difficult. So you can be walking around in downtown Denver and have a couple of blocks where it's really great and there's like buildings and storefronts and, and whatnot, and then you'll hit a parking lot and then it just sucks. Open sores. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and then, you know, you walk a block or two and then you pick up again and there's like, oh, some good buildings and whatnot. So it's this patchwork of great urban places and spots uh, intermixed with um, these surface parking lots. And so for me, infill development removes those parking lots and fills in those places with buildings that typically have some type of ground floor, either commercial use, or if nothing else, at least just the, the physical presence of a building kind of helps provide that form that helps enclose the street and makes the, the environment feel more pedestrian friendly. So that is why I am into infill development. It's not because of like, I'm, I'm all into development pro formas or whatever. Um, it's because it helps make our makes our city more walkable. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought that up, Ken, because one of the quotes I pulled directly from the blog was, we, caps, italicize, loathe <laughs> surface parking lots and seek their eradication from Denver's urban core. Yeah. So it's true to yourself yeah. <laughs> through and through. Yeah, you know, we, um, I mean, Denver Infill is an objective, it provides objective information, right? I mean, it's organized around typically reporting on projects, and it's fairly straightforward. Here's what's proposed, here's the location, here's the number of floors, here's the number of homes or amount of you know square footage of office space or whatever, here's a rendering, it's objective. But the one place where we allow ourselves to be editorial is on the <laughs> issue of parking. And that's kind of been our, our shtick, you might say, for you know sure. the last 17 years is it's a it's a it's objective site but we editorialize about parking and we're not we don't apologize for our anti-parking yeah. perspective because parking lovers need not apply yeah i mean cars <laughs> cars ruin cities mm -hmm. you know it, the problem isn't the car itself it's cars are amazing machines right for transporting mm -hmm. people it's the problem is is not the car it's designing cities around cars as opposed to mm -hmm. around the pedestrian. That's the issue. Well, since you're, you know, our resident urban design expert, I would actually love to take this opportunity to talk about, you know, since the 1990s, you said that a lot of the infill has been really concentrated around downtown Denver. So in your experience as a pedestrian um, and as a resident of Denver, I'd love to hear more about how that area has changed over the last 20 or 30 years at the pedestrian scale. Yeah, so I think when you look at downtown Denver in the 1980s and into the 1990s, it was basically a glorified office park. Bunch mm -hmm. of high-rise office buildings full of people during the day. So downtown Denver, Monday through Friday from 8 to 5 or 6 p.m. was a lively place. You could go walking out in the mall during lunchtime and there's tens of thousands of people out and about. And then on the weekends, and in the evening, it was dead. And just like an office park in the suburbs would be if you went there on a Sunday afternoon or on a Tuesday night, there's nothing going on. 
So, so that's kind of one thing was sort of this, the fact that it was the diversity of uses in downtown wasn't as rich as it should have been. It was overly dependent on office users. And then the other thing is, is that we have, I mean, kind of when you look at the urban form of the downtown area, we had these, you know, the central business district, which right there tells you again, kind of the over-reliance <laughs> on one yeah. thing. So yeah. you had these like, you know, 40, 50 story towers and then like almost across the street at some point, boom, like single family homes with the one exception being kind of to the southeast of downtown with Capitol Hill. Because what Capitol Hill represents is this really beautiful transition from an urban mm -hmm. form perspective from the high rises of downtown to ultimately single family kind of detached neighborhoods, you know, a couple of miles mm -hmm. away. And you've got this nice transition of high rise and mid rise and then low rise apartments and duplexes and whatnot until you kind of get far enough out and then you have those single family homes. But you don't have that beautiful transition and scale down in density in the other directions for various reasons, mm -hmm. industrial areas, rail yards, and things like that. So two issues, it's kind of the, the over-reliance on office, and then this sort of like abrupt transition from high rise to low rise. And what we've seen in the last you know 30 years or so in, in with infill development is the correction of those two things. Number one is mm -hmm. downtown has become so much of a livelier, better place because of the introduction of more residential. Right? Mm -hmm. It's become a more 24 hour or at least an 18 hour city because when all of the office workers go home, rather than it being dead, it's still vibrant because we've got all of these people who live in downtown who are out walking their dogs and going, getting groceries and just doing stuff that people do in the evening after, you know, after work. So that's been really helpful has been the, just the sheer quantity of residential units um, and the population of downtown. And then the other thing that is really important and I think is, is really helping make Denver a much more urban and better place is the filling in of what I call the parking lot belt hmm. that surrounded the central business district. Because when we built all of these skyscrapers in the 1970s and 80s, a lot of them didn't have as much parking as they could have had or needed because there was no parking requirement in the central business district. So what property owners did in the neighborhoods surrounding downtown was, you know, they had like some of these older buildings that they didn't particularly value, or maybe they were in disrepair. And so they're like, well, I'm going to tear down my old three-story, you know, apartment or office building or something that was there and make it into a parking lot because there's such demand for parking for these brand new, mm. you know, 40, 50 story towers in the central business district. And so as a result, we had Golden Triangle, the northwest corner of Capitol Hill, Uptown, and Arapahoe Square, kind of the wow. south, southeast and east and kind of northeast sides of downtown became this, the parking lot belt. I never and thought it, of it like that, almost the clear cutting of buildings as you clear cut a forest kind of for yeah. this use of now we want trees, we want wood, we're going to clear cut it, but yeah. you can't take, those can't come back, that old growth can't come back. 
Right. Mm. Well, it can try in a different way than not how it ever was. Yeah. And that parking lot belt was three, four, five, six-ish blocks. Kind of, it's not consistent, but it's kind of in that range. And then at some point you get past the parking lot belt, and then that's when you hit the single family homes Mm -hmm. that you find in like Five Points or in uh, City Park West or Mm -hmm. further into Capitol Hill and and other areas. Um, And so, so much of the, the infill development that we've seen in the last, you know, couple of decades is in that parking lot belt. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we've had some high rises and some infill, of course, a lot in the core downtown itself. But I think it's really it's those five to ten to fifteen story buildings in that kind of zone transition zone between the central business district and then the neighborhoods beyond. That that is what is to me really exciting because that provides then the transition so that you could walk from a neighborhood like let's say City Park West and you could walk and see this sort of in slowly increasing density that goes from single family all the way to 50 stories mm-hmm. and kind of a nice right. transition in between with a ground floor activation or something at the ground level that's of interest, hopefully, along the way. And again, it's all about the pedestrian. Right. So, I mean, I guess what is interesting, how did we get from this single-use disjointed form that was happening into, into the infill? You know, like what, how did developers know what to provide, you know, to fit the city's needs? Yeah. So, I think a pivotal moment was the rezoning of the whole city in 2010. So kind of going back just a bit. So back in the 80s and 90s, and you know, we had a zoning code that had its roots in the 1950s. And it was very automobile oriented, and it was focused very heavily on use as opposed to form. And so it produced things like drive-throughs and parking lots in front of buildings right, between the street and the, and the building. Um, and it was giving us an urban form and a distribution of land uses that was not consistent with what our vision was for the city as articulated in the 2002 version of Blueprint Denver, which was our, kind of our new, at the time, our new comprehensive plan and land use and transportation plan. So the city said, well, you know, zoning is a means to an end. It is a tool to accomplish the goals and vision of a city. And so if you if you say this is the city we want to be, and then you've got a zoning code that is producing the opposite, that's not a good thing. You need to change the tool. So change the zoning, which is what we did. So that new 2010 zoning code sort of unlocked the potential for a lot of areas and it provided regulation that created some better forms and kind of it was more uh, context-based and form-based than the previous zoning code so it requires buildings to be put up you know up against the sidewalk right to kind of establish street walls as opposed to being set back with parking in front that type of thing Mm -hmm. so overall there was a lot of good things that came from that 2010 zoning code that helped to facilitate and provide some guidance in, in shaping the urban form in all of this new development that we've seen in the last uh, 20 years or so. But there's also a key part of the 2002 Blueprint Denver, uh, sort of a di- dichotomy of areas of stability, areas of change. And they, they basically mapped the entire city of Denver and every parcel was put into one of those two buckets. What was the, I mean, you were living here at the time, what was the reaction? Because I, I feel like a lot of what people want, developers, homeowners, property owners, you want a clear idea of 
what your property's worth and how it's supposed to be used. So this stability and change dichotomy, how did that go over like publicly? Well, I think it was popular because what of the what you heard from a lot of the people who lived in single family detached neighborhoods that were historic or well established was that they wanted to they wanted it to stay that way. So the city said, "Okay," and they gave them <laughs> a regulatory scheme, a conceptual framework for doing that. And so the city said, okay, if it's an established neighborhood and it's not near transit and there's not any other kind of reasons why it should go through change, then we will call that an area of stability. And therefore, when it was rezoned, it was rezoned in a way that would allow a little bit of change here and there, but largely kept those single-family detached neighborhoods with single-family detached only zoning on them so that they would stay that way. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then everything else, uh, the other parts of the city, downtown, areas near transit stations or future transit stations, redevelopment sites like the former Stapleton Airport, you know, there's other parts of the city where clearly either change was already happening or we were anticipating change or we wanted change. Uh, and those are the areas that were deemed as areas of change. And then they received those areas received zoning that was higher density, you know, more mixed use and kind of you know, more urban. So that was what we got in 2010 with mm-hmm. the new zoning code. And so, you know, I mean, there's, it's, it's worked well in, in some ways. It's directed growth to these areas of change. That was kind of the whole idea was we are expecting Denver to grow in the coming decades. And we want to channel most of the growth into these areas of change that will allow them the areas of stability to stay basically like they are, right? And it did do that. But there's also been some consequences of that, that I think in hindsight, wasn't what we wanted. And when we look at the areas of change and the areas of stability, uh, the areas of stability cover 80 some percent, 70 to 80 percent of the city. And these were, again, the single family detached neighborhoods. But when we go back and we think about the history of single family detached zoning, the cause or the root of that type of zoning has an unfortunate history to it in that it was often the type of zoning placed on an area or the zoning in itself, single family detached only zoning was created as a means of exclusion Mm -hmm. of keeping people of color or poorer people or renters out because there was a higher barrier of entry for housing in that area. You had to be able to buy the land and put a home on it. And it's, it's more expensive to keep up and whatnot. And so it excluded people. And today, of course, we look at that as um, something that is, you know, against our values and our efforts to remove institutionalized racism and discrimination in our land use and development policies and, and regulations. And then meanwhile, we had these areas of change which were former industrial areas or the areas that were industrial but sort of obsolete downtown and then areas um, near transit stations so rtd when they uh, laid out their rail network both pre-fast tracks and then as part of fast tracks for the most part rtd's uh, rail lines follow historic freight 
railroad corridors because RTD bought the right of way from the from the uh, railroad companies, the freight companies. And what kind of neighborhoods typically are located close to freight tracks and industrial areas? Largely, historically, poor neighborhoods or uh, neighborhoods where communities of color lived. Well, those are also the areas that we designated as areas of change and where all of this growth was forced to go. So then all the growth comes and we get all of this great upheaval in these neighborhoods, you know, where there's communities of color and areas where people of lesser means live. And then who comes in, but, you know, people, whiter people or people with more means. And that's by definition, gentrification. And so we now have like, we're, oh my gosh, there's all this gentrification going on. It's like, yeah, that's, that's right. But we planned it that way. Right. We basically channelized two decades of growth into 20% of the land area exactly. that our city has to offer. Exactly. So what today we are starting to talk about and, and having some difficult conversations about, and but a lot of people are pushing is to remove the ban on multifamily housing from the 80% of the city where mm -hmm. it's uh, currently restricted to single family detached only. Now, it doesn't mean that we're proposing to go in and tear down neighborhoods of single family homes. But what we can do is we can say, all right, instead of you having only one option, and that is to build a single unit dwelling on a lot in those neighborhoods, why not be able to build up to, let's say, four units? You know, mm -hmm. so it could, be a still, it could still be a single family home, but it could also be a duplex, a triplex, or a fourplex. Mm -hmm. And architecturally, it is easy to build duplexes and triplexes and quadplexes in a way that make them fit beautifully in to their surrounding area and sit beautifully next to single family homes. They do not have to be, you know, towering structures, obviously, if you're only talking three, four units. They can look <laughs> just like, you know, they can fit in mm -hmm. nice context, right? No, and there are examples throughout the city that people may not even realize, mm -hmm. right? That yeah. already are these triplexes quadplexes that are seamlessly in their neighborhood and they don't even know it. Exactly. In fact, it's like people say, well, we want to protect the character of the neighborhood. Well, it's like, well, if, yeah, if you go look at your neighborhoods, these historic Denver neighborhoods that were built before World War II, they're full of duplexes and triplexes and quadplexes. So we're really just not, we're not talking about anything new here. We're just no. simply going back to the, the, forms that we allowed for the first century of the city's history. And that's not going to solve our housing problem. It's not going to make suddenly make all housing in Denver affordable. But what it will do is it, it'll help. And it, we're at this point where we need to, every, every, every little bit helps. And so let's take, for example, let's say you have a, a single family lot in one of these neighborhoods, and it's got a small little bungalow on it, and the people who own it, it's not working for them, it's not enough space or whatever. So they want to replace it, and they want to you know, scrape it and put something new up. Well, currently, they have only one option, and that is to put up another single family house. But based mm -hmm. on the cost of construction and the land value and all the economic factors, they're going to tear down that house, and they're going to put up a 3,000 square foot McMansion that's probably going to sell for $1.2 million. Does so, that keep the character? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the building doesn't look anything like the historic buildings, probably. And it's, it's going the opposite way of affordability. But if that person, that property owner, could put 
a four-unit structure on that site, one of which they could live in, right? Or maybe they just rent them all out. It doesn't really matter. But now in that same box, the same building envelope that they would have built anyway with one unit in it, they could have four units in it that maybe go for four or 500,000 each. Mm-hmm. So it then provided, it now provides more housing, more units at a price point that is lower than it would have been if it was just a single unit. Um, and so, and that's a that's a kind of an evolution in our in these neighborhoods that can occur over time. It's not something that's going to just you know, developers aren't going to buy up whole city blocks or neighborhoods and scrape them and do that. It's going to be uh, organic, incremental growth. But over time, we could add thousands and thousands of units. Mm-hmm. Um, that helps both in terms of prov- providing supply and also helping keep the cost of housing. Uh, it's not going to be cheap, but at least it will relieve a little of the pressure of of having things to be even more expensive. Providing different options. A uh, question for you. What do you think is one thing you wish people who are against infill, especially in kind of single family neighborhoods, kind of realized about this mission to give you know people more choice in what they can build on that lot to add density? Well, a couple of things. Number one is, is I've always been a little baffled why people live in a big city and then have anti-urban <laughs> tendencies. It's like, to me, I love living in a place like Denver because I enjoy the density. I like seeing busy sidewalks and having retail that's nearby that I can walk to, which is only supportable if you have enough density. And and same thing with transit. I mean, transit only really works if you've got a, a density level that kind of can support it, right? Support that investment. So to me, I've always, it's a little baffling why somebody would want to live in the heart of a big city like Denver and then complain about things that are urban. So that's mm-hmm. just number one. But the other thing is, is that fundamentally, to me, all nimbyism, you know, nimby, not in my backyard, all nimbyism ultimately can just simply be boiled down to selfishness. Mm-hmm. And when you listen to NIMBY's talk, if like at a public meeting or something like that, it's my this, my mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. our this, I this. It's all about them. It's about their view their supposedly supposed right to park on the street in front of their house right <laughs> it's it's all about them and to in me in that moment too and at not that the moment future. Yeah. yeah and to me cities are about we it's about community mm-hmm. it's about us it's about people living together you know bringing lots of people together where we can achieve greater things than we can um, if we were all kind of doing it individually so to me, nimbyism is about selfishness and horrible stereotypes and misconceptions and, you know, people thinking that renters are somehow less of people, you know, are <laughs> yeah. lower, lower less class of people of of than, yeah. than property owners, that somehow multifamily housing, just because you've got a wall connected between your home and another person's home is somehow worse than having space, you know, like a lawn or something between your house and the next family's house. So there's just, you know, there's just so much kind of racist and classist undertones to a lot of this, even if people aren't willing to admit it. And, mm-hmm. and of course, they don't want to admit it. 
And so they point to things like traffic and parking and this and that, because those are all sort of surface level type ways to be able to explain why you're opposed to the new apartment building that is proposed to come in down the street from you. But I think if people look a little more deeply at it, I think that they would find that um, they're being selfish. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think I think what you're getting at here, Ken, is really um, could be lovely. You know, to say that infill should be more about community building, improving the pedestrian experience, improving the quality of life. You know, for the residents that that live here. And if we're going to keep growing, we might as well grow with open arms. You know. Yeah, I mean, uh, we want our the the people who live here today of all you know colors and types and levels of income and i mean the diversity of a city we want to, you know we want to maintain that and we want to make it even richer and more diverse and not only to allow the people who are here to be able to stay but to allow that new person who wants to live in denver to be welcomed and it's just becoming really difficult to do that. And so because it's so expensive, it's it's filtering out people who we, we would otherwise want to, you know, we want to have in the city, mm-hmm. or it's causing people that we want to be able to stay in the city and, and it's causing them to, to move away. And that's sad. It's terrible. So yeah, I mean, it seems like it's going to be, it is a time of important conversations and tough conversations and reevaluating our values as a city um, and yeah, just promoting mm-hmm. positive redevelopment and infill. Yeah. And, you know, again, just, just like the, the new zoning code in 2010 was an ex was a reaction to blueprint Denver from 20, uh, from 2002. Mm-hmm. Well, we updated blueprint Denver in 2019 mm-hmm. and the, uh, at the heart of the 2019 version of Blueprint Denver is equity. And of course, that's you know, defining what that means and figuring out how that translates into regulation and plans and policies is not hard, uh, not easy, I should say. It's, it's a little <laughs> it's difficult. Hard. So we're kind of working through how to, to do that. But I think an update to the Denver Zoning Code to address some of these issues is, is going to be important. And I think the first place to start is to take any neighbor, every, every lot that is currently zoned with single family detached only and to um, say up to four units is a use by right. And then there's parking, but that's probably for another another <laughs> that's podcast. Probably another conversation. All of that. <laughs> well, thank you, Ken. We could talk to you for a long time, and, and you've been our professor, and, and we've really enjoyed conversations and learning from you. So thank you for being on today and sharing about Denver Infill, both historically and then kind of the, there are reasons to hope for how it can continue <laughs> in the future. Yeah, I think so. And thanks for thanks for asking me. It's been a lot of fun. It's been really fun. <laughs> so I will close out our episode today with our segment, Can Somebody Ask a Blank? So today, can somebody ask a, I guess, someone who's familiar with historic Denver planning, what the heck happens in Capitol Hill when you're walking, you know, east-west on, you know, it happens on like 10th, 11th, 12th. The road, actually just on 11th and 12th, because I live really close to here, the road makes this really funny little, and there are a couple buildings that basically like stick out into the road in this part. They look like historic buildings, kind of between Logan and Grant. What happens there? I always wonder it. (laughs) Somebody ask a Denver historian, if only we knew one, Ken, if only we had one on deck. I can offer an answer. 
Okay. <laughs> uh, it's it's more of a general answer than maybe mm. that exact location. But cities are built, and particularly back in the day, cities were built by subdivisions, by plats, mm. platting of subdivisions. And so, um, I mean, there was a point in time when 11th and Logan, everything yeah. past it to the east was just rolling prairie as far as the eye could mm-hmm. see, right? So a, some developer came in and said, hey, I want to build a subdivision, attach it, you know, kind of like extend the city further east. Mm-hmm. And they platted a subdivision. But back then, we didn't have quite the development regulations that we do today mm-hmm. that would, let's say, let's say, require that developer to create a street pattern mm-hmm. that lines up with all of the adjacent right. streets. And so there was it was a little more Wild West-ish back then. <laughs> it does feel like a mistake because it's so subtle. It's so subtle. <laughs> yeah, and so they just, you know, but they were just like, yeah, okay, it looks good. And then they built it, and sometimes things don't line up. You also see yeah. it on Colfax, East Colfax. Subdivisions mm. on the north side have a street grid that is a little different than the subdivisions on the south side of Colfax, right. and so yeah. streets don't line up, and so you'll have, like, a north-south street that hits Colfax, and then it continues on the other side of Colfax, mm-hmm. but it's 150 feet bit. over yeah. or something, which, yeah. of course, drives traffic engineers crazy because now you have to figure <laughs> out how to how to make the traffic flow on a situation like that. Good. <laughs> well, thank you. Look at that. We got an answer. And I, I always it. think that. Yeah, it's it bothers me every time. So, well, that's everything for today. Thank you so much again, Ken. Thank you, Ken. You're welcome. And Thanks. We'll, Thanks again. We'll see you around the cap building. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. <laughs> thank you.